As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. If you are a regular listener to my Most Notorious podcast, the original one, this case you're about to hear may sound familiar. About two years ago, I did what I called a mini-episode, a non-interview episode, highlighting a couple of cases that hadn't been written about in books. The Shook family murders in 1929, Wasika, Minnesota, was one of those cases. Fast forward to this month. I received an email from a relative of the family who had been doing her own research on the case for many years and hoped that bringing it forward again might lead to new information and possible resolution for the family. So first I'm going to replay the recording from 2016, which tells the basic story of the murders and the following investigation, and then we'll shift to an interview, which reveals some fascinating new information about the case, information that might potentially reveal new evidence. So let's begin. Dear Most Notorious, as a fan of your podcast, I would absolutely love to hear you tackle the Shook family murders that occurred in Wasika, Minnesota in 1929. What I do know about it was that the patriarch of the family and two of the children were gruesomely killed at the family farm while three other children were away. Motive still remains a mystery, and the case is still unsolved. It's a story that still terrifies folks in and around that region and has inspired lots of speculation and even some ghost stories. Seems like the perfect crime for most notorious to take on. Kelly, I agree. Thank you for the letter, and let's hear the story of the Shook family tragedy. Julius Shook was born in Austria in 1874 and married a fellow Austrian named Wilhelmina in 1901. They came to America as immigrants in 1908, and eventually they made their way to Minnesota and had a number of children along the way, as Julius carved out a life as a farmer. One young son died in 1912. The boy was bringing a horse in from the pasture with a halter rope tied around his waist when the horse got scared and dragged the boy to his death. More tragedy happened in 1928, just as the family was settling down on their new rented farm in Wasika, a town about 80 miles straight south of Minneapolis. 
Mrs. Wilhelmina Shook died in her sleep, leaving her husband to raise four children. In May of 1929, the year of the murders, the children and their ages were Edith, 12, Ernest, 10, Wilhelmina, 16, and Ernestine, 15. They had two older children that moved out of the house, John, 20, and Mary, 19. The farm itself was in a tiny township called Iosco, about four miles northwest of Wasika. On a Saturday evening, May 18, 1929, at about 8.30 p.m., neighbors heard screams coming from the Shuk farm, but paid no attention because, as they said later, the Shuk children loved to play in their yard and screams were not uncommon. The two older girls still living at home, Elizabeth and Wilhelmina, had driven to Wasika to buy family supplies and visit friends that night. They'd left home at about 7.30. When they arrived back to the farm at about 9.30, they noticed lights on in the basement, the main floor, and the upstairs windows, which was strange to them because the family was usually asleep by 8. When they walked in, they saw their younger sister, Edith, on the living room floor, lying in a pool of blood. Her head was crushed in. Their first instinct was to call neighbors for help, but the telephone wires had been ripped from the wall. Panicked, they jumped in their car and sped back to Wasika, where they found a police officer, Simon Connolly, on the street, and told him of their sister's evident murder. Soon Connolly was in a car with the sheriff, the county attorney, and the coroner, and they were all headed to the Shuk farm. When they arrived, they found the girls still alive, but just barely. One of the girls went to a neighbor's house, a farmer named George Jones, and used his phone to call an ambulance. As authorities went through the farmhouse, they noticed blood on the kitchen doorknob, a pail of water spilled on the floor, in a turned-over chair. Upstairs, the rooms were empty of people, but in disarray. With overturned beds and the drawers from the bureaus pulled out, their contents dumped on the floor. It certainly appeared to them that robbery was the motive. When they went back downstairs, one of the daughters told them that the family's 150-pound safe was gone from the living room. The sheriff immediately went back to Wasika to call the Minnesota State Department of Criminal Apprehension in St. Paul about the crime. In the meantime, the ambulance had arrived and Edith was taken to the Wasika hospital. Officer Connolly began a search of the grounds and found the body of the father, Julius, lying in the orchard about 200 feet from the house. There was a gaping hole in his skull and his right eye had been pulverized. There were cuts and scrapes on his hands and arms, and his fists were clenched in death. The grass around his body was trampled, and it appeared to the officer that there had been a mighty scuffle prior to the man's death. Connolly continued his search, and about 500 feet from the house, in a nearby wheat field, was the body of the young boy, Ernest. The back of his skull had been crushed as well. Soon someone found a hammer in a bush near the driveway to the farm, covered in blood. It was a 12-ounce mechanic's hammer, the type usually carried in automobiles for repair. A deputy sheriff's hounds picked up a scent, and soon they found two sets of boot prints, set far enough apart to make investigators think that two men might have been dragging a safe between them. The footprints soon stopped at a road, and the scent was lost. Speculation began that the men probably loaded the safe up in a car at that point. A fingerprint expert was also brought in from Wasika to scour the house for fingerprints, but no report exists now as to whether anything came of this or not. A gray cap was found outside, and a tag inside was eventually traced to a store in Waterville, a town not far away. 
but that would become an eventual dead end as the clerk couldn't remember who he sold it to. In the meantime, Edith, the young girl who had been taken to the hospital, died without ever regaining full consciousness. The neighbor in the farm next door, George Jones, was questioned and remembered looking at the farm after screams were heard, but saw no cars coming or going. A young girl staying with the family, however, Ruth Iverson, who in 1995 put down on paper her memories of the night, recalled her grandmother seeing two men in a touring car driving on the back road from the Shook Farm at high speed. Ruth herself remembered her friend's father, George Jones, going out that night to kill chickens for Sunday dinner. She recalled hearing him say after he returned to the house, The Shooks are surely having a time over there tonight. They're hollering help and everything. Later, George Jones would become one of the primary suspects in the investigation. Ruth Iverson, however, again disputed that he could have ever been involved, saying she remembered him there at the house, and there would have been no way for him to be involved in the murders. And in reality, despite a massive hunt, no one was ever arrested for the murders of Julius and his children. Despite a $1,500 reward and a full-time investigation by members of the Department of Criminal Apprehension, through the entire summer and into the fall, no leads panned out into anything substantial. A bachelor farmer named John Minsky, who had lived in the area, had been bludgeoned to death with an ox yoke on his farm four years earlier, and many suspected it might have been the same party involved in that murder. But again, nothing even remotely concrete. Just pure speculation. A few days after the funeral, the family's estate was sold at auction for $3,000. Thousands of the morbidly curious visited the farm in the weeks after the murders to look for themselves at the crime scene. The county attorney, who had been one of the first on the scene, a man named Schumer, later came up with his own theory on what had happened that night. He thought that the farmer and son had already gone to bed for the night, as they were found murdered in their bedclothes. Edith had sat in the living room, waiting for her big sisters to come home. Instead of her sisters, though, she was met by the two intruders, who most likely, surprised by her presence, attacked her. The noise woke up the father and son, and the father chased the intruders to his orchard, where they turned and fought him until he was killed. The boy made a run for help, but the men chased him down in the wheat field and killed him from behind, as evidenced by the wound in the back of the boy's head. There had also been rumors for years that Julius Schuch had inherited money from a brother that passed in Germany and kept that money in the safe. Even Ruth Iverson remembered as a young girl that at a school party in the Shuk's home, one of the Shuk daughters warned a fellow student not to touch the safe, or they would call the police. Later, the family admitted that there was only $25 inside at the time it was stolen. An extensive search for the safe was made, and large numbers of volunteers were organized to look. Investigators even used airplanes to search for it, but it was never recovered. Years later, in 1965, a man named John Rule, on his deathbed, called the sheriff to his house and confessed to the murders. The sheriff, however, didn't give the confession much weight as Rule had been known to be a big talker in life, and Rule never became a suspect. This is a group of murders that has hung over the city of Wasika for many, many years, and again have never been solved, and most likely, never will. I'm here with Jen Barr, who contacted me after she'd gotten wind that I had done an episode about the Shook family murders a couple of years ago, and she'd sent me a tantalizing email that I could not resist, telling me of the research that she'd done and the theories she has about the murders, and potential new evidence in the case. So thanks so much, Jen, for agreeing to come on and talk about this. 
Yeah, you're welcome. So let's start with your relationship to the family. How are you related to the Shooks? Um, they would have been, so my grandmother, my mom's mom, is Wilhelmina, who was the 16-year-old daughter, um, one of the daughters who was out that night with her other sister, Elizabeth. Um, so, um, would have been, well, I guess, um, Edith and Ernest would have been my great aunt and uncle and Julius, uh, was my great grandfather. When did you first hear about these murders and what, what got you so interested in the case? Well, I first found out when I was probably about 13 or 14 and um, we were, I was with my mom and we were at my grandma and grandpa's house um, here in Mankato. And uh, it was one of the anniversary articles that had come out in the paper Um, because they they haven't done that now in a very long time, but it, it hit like the, oh, I want to say 40th, let's see, 74, 84. I want to say it was like the 40th or 45th anniversary of the murders, somewhere in there. And um, the the paper was sitting on the table, and I had, I don't remember a whole lot of it, but I, I just remember my mom and my grandma kind of talking about it. And um, I remember asking, you know, if it, like, you know, kind of asking about it. And my grandma, she never talked about it. And she rarely even talked about it to my mom or anybody else in the family. And um, it was a little bit later on, I think, when we got home that night, I I said something to my mom again. And and my mom kind of told me what she knew, uh, which wasn't very much. Um, and I just kind of left it after that. I, I'd always been interested, but I always knew that there was really no information that I could get at that time. Um, like I said, because my grandma wouldn't talk about it at all. Um, once, once my grandma hit 18, she did legally change her name. She dropped the Wilhelmina. Her full name was Wilhelmina Helen Jane Shuck. And uh, when she turned 18, she formally changed her name, just dropped the Wilhelmina, and it was just Helen Jane Shuck after that. There's, you know, in the papers and and all of the research, there were some discrepancies as far as age and things like that. My, at the time of the murders, um, my grandma was 16 and Elizabeth was 18. John and Marie had already moved out. Let's see, Marie was already married at this point. She was married to a man named Carl Magley. And uh, the Magley family had owned uh, a farm in between, well, Mankato and Eagle Lake. I don't know if Eagle Lake was in existence at that point as a as a town. And John was living and working in Mankato. Um, and then that, so then that left the four kids at home in Wasika. So, yeah, that's kind of how I found out. <laughs> Interesting. So you never talked to your grandmother directly about this, right? No, I I tried to ask some questions, um, but she she wouldn't she wouldn't speak about it at all. When I put together that little narrative on the case for the regular Most Notorious podcast, I, I basically just went to the Minnesota Historical Society Research Center and went through as many period newspapers as I had time for and kind of piece the story together from there. Now, I, of course, might have missed something. Sometimes stories printed from the time period are biased, not completely accurate. Um, After listening to it, how did my reporting of the story match up with what you have learned through your own research? 
did I get anything wrong? Was there anything I said that you hadn't heard before? No, everything I'd heard um, or read um, or was able to find out, everything was really that you had, you know, reported on was really pretty spot on. And I guess that's what, that's what drew me really to contact you and email you and, and just kind of say, hey, you know, I'm a descendant of this and it's still, I think as generations passed and, you know, the kids, you know, now the kids growing up, it, it at least in Wasika, it's maybe not so much, you know, talked about. There's a lot of urban legends uh, that are going on around it still. Um, my sister and her kids live in Wasika. And um, my nephew, who is now a freshman in college, um, when he was, I want to say, about seventh or eighth grade in one of his history classes, they had to write a paper um, kind of on, on local local history and, and things like that. And so, of course, you know, the his paper was based on, on the murders. And I remember him coming to me and, you know, asking me all sorts of questions and stuff. And, and that was kind of neat, you know, that he still wanted to, I guess, find out more. And, and I don't know if maybe keeping it alive is the right way to say it, but I've always hoped that something would come about. I know that, you know, the individuals that would have been, because I do believe there was more than one, would have been involved. I, I'm sure they're, you know, deceased by now um, and probably have, you know, taken their secrets with them. But I think even as far as, I think for me and maybe even the rest of that side of the family that's still living, which are now mostly, you know, cousins, would be to find the safe, which I doubt that'll ever happen. Um, I, I have a I have an idea of where it possibly could be. It's just a hunch, but of course, it's where it is is uh, the land is still owned by the Shuck family. So I'm not sure how open they would be to digging on their property, but. <laughs> so there's quite a bit to digest here from what you've just said. First, I, I want to make sure I understand that the Shook farm is still owned by members of the Shook family. It is. It is. So originally, originally the property was owned by uh, Carl Magley's family, his parents. Um, it was the Magley family farm. Now, again, it was Carl who married Marie, my grandma's sister. Later on down the line, I'm not sure when it was. Um, I don't know if it was after Carl's parents had, had passed away. But the farm was then sold to John, my grandma's brother. So John and his wife at that time, Opal, um, they farmed the land, they, you know, they raised their family in the house and all of the kids. And I was lucky enough by, I guess she'd be my second cousin, Carolyn, who has now passed away. Um, but before she passed, uh, her husband was a, um, I believe he was a sheriff here in Blue Earth County. So, of course, you know, him, knowing other members of law enforcement, they were able to get from back then the whole uh, BCA case file. So I was lucky enough before Carolyn passed to sit down with her on a couple of different occasions. And uh, I was able to make copies of the whole case file. So I have... I have that in my possession. And I think that, you know, that is, I started out, I don't know what really brought me to wanting to do more research on it because I had never really been, I've been interested, but I had never really, you know, taken the time to do any type of family 
you know, genealogy or research or anything like that. And it was a very good friend of mine who um, is a police officer, and we were talking, and it was actually him who had kind of gotten me into wanting to know more. And so it did start out with going, you know, spending many afternoons in Wasika at the Historical Society and uh, reading and copying off newspaper articles and then going from there and getting in touch with Carolyn and sitting down with her. And uh, I just found myself getting very, I almost want to say obsessed with wanting to find out more. You know, and I, I think a lot of it was because back then it was such, it was such big news and it's a part of, you know, Minnesota history, um, not just, you know, Wasika and all of that, but Minnesota in general. Um, so I was able to find out um, more on the genealogy side. I was able to find out a lot more uh, as far as the more um, brothers and sisters that they had had, that my grandma had had, um, who had died very young due to, you know, illness and um, a lot of driving around the countryside, I was able to find uh, the um, little graveyard um, or cemetery that uh, they are buried at. Um, And it all just kind of, you know, spiraled from there. And um, my mom, you know, I I went to my mom with everything and I I started telling her, you know, and, and showing her different stuff. And she was completely shocked, you know, because again, this was stuff that was never talked about in the family. And, you know, I felt a little bad for her, um, you know, because she, you know, she kind of felt like she should have known, you know, some of this stuff. Um, And as I got older, it, looking back at kind of my childhood and my sisters, you know, with my with my grandma, it really made me understand uh, the way that the reason why she was how she was as being very, very overprotective and very particular on certain things. And um, so it, it unfortunately it was, you know, way after she had passed away already, but it gave me a greater appreciation for her as well. I'm sorry, I probably, I probably just sound like I'm rambling, rambling all over. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. You're welcome to to ramble as as long as you'd like. So I really can't imagine anything more traumatic than walking into a house and discovering what what she discovered. Yeah, you know, and I, I thought about that. You know, I um one of the things that I have within the case file is, and of course they're you know scanned on or copied onto paper, and so it's not very clear. Um, clear enough to know what you're looking at, but um, I have pictures of, unfortunately, you know, Edith, Ernest, and Julius deceased, you know, laying there. Well, I think at the time that with Edith, when the pictures were taken, she was, she was still alive, um, yet unconscious, but, uh, you know, and, and just trying to put myself in my grandma's shoes and, and, you know, being 16 years old and coming home from, I'm assuming, a fun, you know, Saturday night and finding, you know, finding that and finding your little sister laying there, you know, bludgeoned in the head. And uh, I, I can't imagine how, with the strength that she had and the poise that my grandma had, um, how she was able to carry that with her. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I really enjoy conversations like this, hearing from an actual family member connected to the story. Sometimes these stories that take place long ago, it's easy to feel disconnected. And this was such a terrible, traumatic event that she experienced. I mean, she was the living victim in all of this. She was the one that had to suffer with those images in her head for so many years. Right. So I want to go back because... We left this dangling, <laughs> uh, this thing about the safe and the family estate. So, so I'll start with this. What what does the homestead look like currently? I mean, the house is, is no longer there, right? Right. They actually tore the house down because it, it was literally falling apart. They finally tore the house down, uh, I want to say, about two years ago, somewhere around there. And it's, you know, it's something that, um, you know, growing up and, and even in my adult years and, and um, I lived in Eagle Lake, you know, for a while and and taking, it used to be Highway 14 until, you know, all of a sudden the, you know, highways and stuff started coming through. So it was always to, you know, any of us who have lived here and grew up here, it was always old 14, you know, but I would always drive by the house. And I was kind of wonder and um, my gut and I, it has always been this way. My gut tells me that that safe is somewhere on that property. The, you know, as soon as it happened, they had, I don't know if it's dredged or, or, you know, whatever they had kind of combed um, the bottoms of the lakes in, uh, in Wasika and nothing was ever found in the lakes. I believe in my gut that the safe could possibly be located on the old Magley property. Not saying, of course, without any proof, and at this point in time, you know, with so many years have gone on, there's no way to get this proof. Not saying that... uh, you know, Carl specifically had anything to do with it, but I believe that if he did not have anything directly to do with it, that he closely knew people who were. And the reason why I say that I I believe that the safe could be on that property, um, which of course, like I stated earlier, had changed hands from Magley's to my great uncle John. Um, and his family when John bought the farm from them is stated in the case file within a couple of days. And, and I do believe in coincidences, but there are some things that I think are just too coincidental to overlook within a couple of days. Oh, excuse me. Within a couple of days of the murder, there was a new patio or concrete slab that was dug up and poured next to the house. When questioned about that concrete slab that was put there as to what it was being, you know, going to be used for, um, it states in the in the case file that they they didn't the parents didn't have anything to do with it. That it was the um, it was the sons who lived in the house that had that had done that i again my gut tells me that if anybody in the shock family the the a couple of uh, john and opal sons that still own the land um and do still now it's more so that like their grand sons and, and grandsons who will still farm the land what's left of it anyway that hasn't been, you know, sold. If anybody would be interested in digging that area up, I would be interested to see if the safe actually isn't 
underneath that concrete slab. Yeah, it's always suspicious when concrete is poured <laughs> uh, right after multiple murders. Especially when he was, on a couple of different occasions, a suspect. And Carl Magley was suspected at one point by the police. Yes. So you're saying that we don't definitively know that he murdered the family, but he could very well have been connected somehow to the people who did it. I believe so. Yep, I believe so. So what about this deathbed confession from John Rule? Who who was John Rule, and, and what do you make of all of that? Um, with him, all I really know is what was reported. Um, I was also fortunate enough, um, probably about 12 years ago, to speak with an elderly woman without being through everything. I cannot remember her last name, but her first name was Ruth. And she was originally from Wasika, um, lived there her whole life. And, uh had known the family, known my grandma and um, my aunt Elizabeth and and had known Edith and Ernest. And uh, I was able to briefly talk with her. The newspaper, uh, the Wasika Herald, I believe it's called, was able to put me in touch with her. And um, we had talked about that. And That's one thing where I just really don't know. I just don't know. (laughs) Um, I know that, you know, people, you know, when they're, you hear so many times when people are on their deathbed and and they just want to come clean about everything in life, you know, that, yeah, maybe there is some, you know, maybe there is some truth to it. I had always wished that when he made this statement that maybe, you know, the the police or who you know, whomever would have taken it a little bit more seriously and looked into it a little bit more, um, maybe tried to get some more information from him before he passed. Because I also think that, you know, there are, you know, departments within law enforcement who deal with cold cases. And even though so many years had had gone by, I think that it would have been something for them to maybe take seriously and and not just kind of brush off and, and, you know, say, oh, too much time has has gone by, if that's really what happened. Yeah. And, And his name had come up, I believe, once or twice within the um, within the, the case, and you know, and, and of course, you know, the way things are nowadays, as as far as the you know any type of investigations and stuff go, um, you know, you look back at 1929 and it, it, uh, the way that investigations and policing was done, especially with such a heinous crime like this, you know, it it, it wasn't done like it is now. So there, you know, of course, in today's time and you're looking back and you're reading all of this, you're thinking, well, what in the world were they doing? They, you know, they were letting all of the neighbors and, and, you know, onlookers and stuff just kind of come in and trample around and, you know, all of that. And, and that makes it hard, especially, like I said, with the way things are done now to look back and, and, and say, that's, that's how it was done. That's what they had to work with at that point. Was there a reason that you were able to find that Carl Magley was considered a suspect during the time of the investigation? What was it because of his connection to Marie or did he have a motive? Were you ever able to learn why they were so interested in him? Um, from what I, a, a lot of it was, um, well, things that were stated within the case file that other family members and other witnesses had had said just the way that he always wanted to know so much about Julius's business, um, lifestyle, um, you know, things like that, how much money he was making, um, things like that. 
I don't, <clears throat> personally, I don't remember him too much when I was little. After they moved, uh, like, out of Mankato and the Eagle Lake area, they moved to uh, Selk Center. And they had pretty much lived there for many years. To my understanding, Carl was not a very nice man. Certain things that would, that my mom would say, um, he just always scared her. And uh, he just didn't have a very nice, polite demeanor and personality about him. You know, and of course, trying to, as I was doing all of this, trying to keep an open mind and, and not not have my personal feelings come into it, but I just, I couldn't help um, kind of mixing, in a way, mixing the two. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the facts are the facts. I mean, if the case was ever open again, I'm sure law enforcement would go back to those same original suspects. If he was a suspect then, he would be a suspect now, I'd assume. Right. And there were so many names in that, you know, in that case that were brought up. I mean, they looked at, they looked at a lot of people. Um, they looked at a couple of the neighbors. They looked at, they looked at even people who were in Mankato who were known to have, you know, criminal history. So it, it was hard to keep track of, you know, as I was reading this and I, I would kind of go through and write down names and, and then cross them off. As the police would come back and say, well, no, he's not a a suspect anymore because of, you know, this alibi or whatever. Um, So it it wasn't just, you know, a few certain people. They were really, I I think everyone within probably a 50-mile radius was probably a suspect at that time until they started really kind of narrowing things down. And I think with anything, with any... With anything that you hear in the news when you're not related or, or you know, know the victim, um, you still want some closure for that deceased individual or the family. Um, but it's even more so, you know, when you know that you were related to them. I don't want to never, I don't want to ever say never, but I don't believe that you know, the, the murder the, itself, the case itself will ever be closed. I've often wondered who I could get a hold of or if there was anybody um, even at the Bureau that if they have a, a cold case um, department that would ever look at it again with a fresh set of eyes. And I don't even know, you know, what they still have as far as evidence goes, um, because I do know that and um, like you had said in your first um, podcast, was they did end up, you know, finding some type of a, a hammer. If there was still any type of DNA on it, um, I'm assuming probably not fingerprints anymore. But I just, I've always just kind of, kind of wondered. I don't really think that my, you know, like my mom and and her brother, my uncle, and the few cousins and stuff that I've left, I, I don't think that they really care so much. But this is something that's always kind of stuck with me, and and it's a combination. And my sister, too, the more that I would tell my sister, it, it's just more of a a want to know more, but then also a closure for the whole family, and maybe more so a closure for uh, Julius, Edith, and Ernest. And, but then also a closure for all of their children, you know, that, you know, John and Marie and my grandma and Elizabeth, who are now passed. And it, it wasn't too long ago that my police friend had emailed me the link for your your podcast. And I I listened to it. And, and I right then, as soon as it was done, I was like, okay, I've got to Google this guy and I've got to, you know, find a way to reach out to him. So. <laughs> well, and I'm so glad you did. <laughs> well, this is great. I'm glad to talk about this case on Minnesota's Most Notorious. It seems very appropriate for this show. Um, but I, I want to go back real quick to the hammer. 
Is this hammer still around? Is there still evidence sitting in storage somewhere that pertains to this case? I don't know. I I would like to think that it's probably still, you know, sitting in a box labeled with a case number and, and maybe the last name or something up in the cities somewhere. But I, I don't know. I haven't reached out to anybody up there. I've thought about it many times, and I don't know what stopped me. But, yeah, I, I don't know. So this concrete slab continues to intrigue me. <laughs> it might not even be just the safe underneath it. I mean, there might be some additional evidence dumped underneath there, too. Right. Like bloodstained clothes, etc., I mean, if you're looking for new evidence that might prompt authorities to reopen this case, that slab seems a natural place to start. Right. Yeah. <laughs> my my sister had also brought up to me one time, um, not too long ago, about getting, and of course now it would be trespassing because I don't know who owns that property anymore, you know, but getting like, some type of paranormal crew out there and, and see what, you know, if you believe in that sort of thing. And, and I, I will say, honestly, I do, you know, but seeing if they could get any type of, you know, information that way. I have been out to that property a few times, you know, just to maybe, I think more so just to be there and, and just to kind of walk around and see where things stood um, because the buildings are no longer there. Um, but the, you know, the concrete foundation, at least last time I was out there, probably about, last time I was out there, I want to say it was probably about six, seven years ago. Um, you know, but a, a lot of the um, foundation um, for the house and then some other buildings, um, like chicken coops and, you know, things like that, were still there. And and just to kind of walk the driveway and, and kind of look in each direction and, and kind of get an idea as to where things were and, and where, you know, especially Julius and, and um, Ernest, you know, kind of ran. Um, now it's it's all completely grown over, you know, trees, um, high weeds and brush and, and stuff. But um, I also believe that there was something with that land. Uh, too many bad things. It started uh, from what I had found out, you know, it all kind of started with, the murders there, but um, even even after the fact, um, a couple of people that had um, uh, lived there had had some very bad things happen to them in that house. And it was actually, uh, I want to say early 80s, early to mid 80s, there was a lady that had lived there. She was the last one to have lived, there, lived in the house. And she was elderly, and uh, she was in a nursing home, and she had asked her daughter to uh, take her back to the house. She wanted one last look at it before she had passed. And um, as her daughter waited for her outside, uh, she had actually, um, I don't know what she used, um, if there was some type of gasoline or kerosene in the house or or alcohol or whatever, um, but she had actually set the house on fire. And um, she said, nobody, nobody is ever going to get hurt in this house again. And that was, um, it, that was a story that was actually told to me uh, from somebody in Wasika who knew her personally. So there's a lot of, you know, a, a lot of stuff. And of course, you know, then we get into the urban legends and the ghost stories and, you know, um, a lot of the kids. Back in the day, even when it, my I graduated from high school here in Mankato in '93, so even kids uh, that you know grew up in Wasika, um, you know, late '80s, early '90s, it, it, very much still a um, a scary, uh, a scary place to go, especially on Halloween. Which you know, maybe back at that point, I kind of wish I would have known people from Wasika and maybe the crazy kid in me at that point. Would have experienced it, but there have been many reports of, you know, people seeing apparitions of individuals walking, uh, you know, through the woods, 
there's the, the main one that's talked about is a little girl in a white nightgown just walking around the property close to the house. And and that is, you know, it, it again, if you're a believer or a non-believer in the paranormal, it, you know, it is, some people will say, oh, it's, you know, your imagination or you're just saying that because if you, because you know what happened. But when Edith, for example, was, they were all in their night clothes. I, I think the boys did, you know, pull on their pants, but I do know that Edith was, you know, she was in her nightgown, which was white or like a cream color. And so it's just so many unknowns. And it's one of the things where, you know, you, you, as you learn, as you learn one thing, um, there's always five more questions that come along. So what if people want to contact you directly? Is, is there a good way to do that? Yeah, my email is um, wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, underscore woman, W-O-M-A-N, 030, at yahoo.com. Well, thanks so much for sharing this with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Again, my guest has been Jen Barr, who has taken it upon herself to investigate her own family's murder mystery from 1929. Very fascinating stuff. Um, Again, this has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis, and we'll see you next week. Oh, bring back the 7-Up Bar, please, Pearsons.